I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 15 of Caro Pop. This week's guest is one of the most valuable players in rock, XTC guitarist and more, Dave Gregory. When Dave Gregory joined XTC in 1979, the band took the great leap forward with the album Drums and Wires and singles Life Begins at the Hop. making plans for Nigel. Nigel. They never looked back and remain one of my favorite bands. Dave Gregory provided the musical glue in his 20 years with XTC. He consistently elevated the songs of dominant singer-guitarist Andy Partridge and tuneful singer-bassist Colin Mulvey. Gregory came up with the perfect muscular guitar parts to play off Partridge's angular attack, such as on Respectable Street, while supplying hooks galore on songs such as Towers of London. As the band progressed, Gregory expanded his repertoire. His nylon string guitar provided great texture to yacht dance on English Settlement. And he played a wide assortment of keyboards elsewhere. He flexed his creative muscles while working on XTC's psychedelic side project, The Dukes of Stratosphere, as he laid down freak-out guitar breaks here, and Nicky Hopkins-like piano parts there. Dave Gregory is the one who pushed for the band to work with producer Todd Rundgren on XTC's landmark pastoral 1986 album, Skylarky. Not only did Gregory get to play Eric Clapton's vintage Gibson SG The Fool guitar for a memorable solo on That's Really Super Supergirl, but he also provided the string arrangement for 1,000 Umbrellas. That's a song that otherwise was going to be left off the album. But by the release of XTC's last two albums, Apple Venus Volume 1 and Wasp Star Apple Venus Volume 2, Gregory was out of the band. He'd grown tired of Andy Partridge's controlling ways and felt he wasn't contributing enough. Aside from a stitched together Stukes of Stratosphere track from 2003, XTC hasn't released any new material in more than 20 years. What's more, all four members of the classic XTC lineup now live in their hometown of Swindon, England, yet none of them see each other. How can that be? I talked with Dave Gregory about this and a lot more. He walks us through the genesis of various XTC songs, such as Making Plans for Nigel, Generals and Majors, and Earn Enough for Us. He discusses which of his contributions might qualify as songwriting, and he airs his frustrations at Andy Partridge's decision to quit performing live in the middle of the English Settlement Tour. He also speaks to the departure of original drummer Terry Chambers and contrasts the personalities of Molding and Partridge, the latter of whom, he says, feels the need to dominate any room or conversation. Could XTC ever reunite, either to record or just to grab a cup of tea in town? Has Dave Gregory even listened to Wasp Star, the final XTC album? 
We discuss that as well. Please enjoy this carol pop conversation with one of my musical heroes, Dave Gregory. Thank you. So I actually met you once, uh, 1989, I was working for the Boston Phoenix. And when you guys played at WFNX, uh, I was, uh, we sort of stood outside the studio and listened to you do your acoustic oh, oranges yeah. and lemons set. And uh, I chatted with you guys a little bit in out, out there at the meantime. I remember that. It was a scary, I think that was the first uh, actual acoustic show that we did on that little tour, you know, on the promotional tour that we went over to, to, to promote Oranges and Lemons. And we sat there and suddenly we were aware of all, all these people up against the glass looking in. Right. And uh, it was a bit disconcerting. We'd rehearsed and everything. We knew what we were going to do, but suddenly your hands just stopped working for whatever reason. So we were very, very nervous, even though we may not have looked that looked nervous. We were a little bit, a little bit trembly. Right. And well, and you guys hadn't played live in what, like seven years or something like that. So. Well, we played was... together in, you know, before we flew over, we rehearsed, we knew what we were going to do. So we were quite happy that we knew the songs well enough to run through them on acoustic guitars. Uh, but of course, the, it was just this thing of being expected to perform. That's what right. we weren't used to. Yeah, I think I have a recording from when you guys did it in Chicago on WXRT as well. And uh, and of course, your parts are kind of holding everything together because you're doing all the little runs on Love Enough Farm Boys Wages and everything else. Um, so yeah, it sounds well, fantastic. Okay, well, all right. I, I must admit, <laughs> I don't have terribly happy memories of... Uh, we, we got better, I think, as the, as the trip went on. Uh, we loosened up a little bit. But it was all, all very ad hoc. You just roll up at a, a radio station and expect them to record <laughs> three guitars and a couple of voices and make it sound like a decent record. You're just asking, it's, it's a big ask. And uh, I don't think, I, I, I just remember thinking that, well, at least we've put the word out about the new album. People know we've got something out. Here's some campfire versions of some of the tunes. Um, hope you like it. Good night. Well, yeah, it seemed like at that point, it was sort of the rejuvenation of XTC where Skylarkin had come out and gotten more attention than the previous albums and Dear God had been pulled out as a B-side and became this hit and put on the album. And so this was sort of the big, sort of more produced follow-up. And I mean, I remember hearing Mayor of Simpleton on the radio all the time and uh, King for a Day. So it was sort of like the really break you guys into the American market. And since you weren't touring, touring, that this seemed like this was the way they were going to do it. That's right. We had a manager at the time, a guy called Tarquin Gotch, who helped us a great deal in the short time he was with us. Uh, and he was desperate to get Andy Partridge to agree to go out on tour because he knew that if he could put a band together to tour this record, it would sell by the truckload. People were waiting for the follow-up to Skylarking. And uh, this was would have been the perfect opportunity. So he tried everything he could. Eventually, Andy broke down and said, well, look, if I can, I'm still suffering from this kind of stage fright thing. Uh, but if we can arrange to maybe do some 
live performing without an audience. And that was a crucial thing. You know, he, right. he didn't want an audience or at least some people watching his every move. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but um, that was the, that was the kind of, uh, that's what we agreed to do. Uh, but it was really, I found it really hard work for little reward. Hmm. Yes, it did help the sales of the record, but you didn't get any of that sort of post-gig elation. You didn't get the event. You know, you had to carry your own stuff. You're carrying, I'm carrying, you know, tour luggage and a guitar up and down tiny flights of stairs, which sometimes you're doing three, three radio stations a day. Right. And it was just, you know, just why are we putting ourselves through this? It could be so much easier if we just... You know, hopped on a bus, went to the hotel, had a wash and brush up, went to sound check, sorted our instruments out, got everything going just like we used to do. Would have been so much easier, and we might even have got paid. So, <laughs> I was not really a willing party to to that particular arrangement. Although, having having said that, it was better than not doing it at all. You you would have liked to just be touring in like in the old days. Oh, sure, because by that time, we had reams of quality material that had never been performed live. And I knew that, yes, Andy would always argue, well, we can't play these songs live. There's far too many overdubs. We never get away with it. But, you know, Todd Rundgren used to say to us, you know, the fans just want to hear the songs. And he's absolutely right. As long as you've got at least four guys on the session standing on a stage in front of you and they're singing a song that you know and enjoy right that's near enough for most fans and it, and it can be a lot of fun we could have adapted things but andy was so he was just resolutely against taking this thing out on the road again and having to being made to perform i think it was the, the point the fact that other people were prodding him all the time go out there do this do that when really uh, what he did best was staying at home writing songs. And that's still true today. You know, he didn't, he didn't really enjoy the whole uh, performing monkey aspect of, of touring. Right. It's interesting because you have a band like Steely Dan that also, you know, aside from the Beatles, uh, you know, famous example, you have Steely Dan that really quit touring at some point. Um, and then later, you know, years later, they became known as this like live entity you know it's almost so so i don't know whether people have thrown money at xtc to say hey why don't you guys get back together and tour now but uh you know it that i bet that there would be a market for for you doing that as well but i also can't see you guys doing it i don't know if that market is still there uh, but it certainly in the past people did make overtures in that direction and as i say going back to tarquin uh, who was our manager he he eventually decided to quit because he realized that he wasn't going to be able to twist and his arm uh he knew that you know there was a potential i wouldn't say a gold mine necessarily but there was a bloody good living for everybody if we just got off our backsides and did some work and he was happy to engineer that in fact he got us it was thanks to him that we got the letterman show and um we only got that because it was a, one of colin molding's songs that was chosen as the single at that point so colin was more than happy to go over and uh, and play live on the letterman show with with his band and as as was i so andy had no you could either stay at home or you can come along and huh. play rhythm guitar and sing backing vocals so he, he had to come but yeah, he wasn't I remember center stage you see yeah i remember seeing you guys doing king for a day with paul schaefer in the band um yeah. 
and I was like, oh, there's XTC playing live with the band in front of an audience. Yeah. Was that a fraught thing or did it turn out to be fun? No, it was fun. It wasn't fraught at all. Uh, it was, um, I have to say, that I, from what I remember, we were second on the bill to um, a young boy who was a, a marbles champion, which gives <laughs> you some kind of uh, idea of uh, our status at the time. But it was no, it was it, uh, it was fun. And as Tarquin said, that appearance has shifted this album. They're actually buying it. So, you know, it did have an effect. He noticed it, you know, being in touch with the sales office at Geffen, he noticed it within weeks that suddenly this album was actually selling. Did you watch the Beatles Get Back documentary? No, I haven't seen it yet. The thing that, that I couldn't believe was that here's the Beatles. It's the Beatles. And basically because Dennis O'Dell had booked the Magic Christian in that studio in Twickenham, and he had an extra month at the beginning of it. And that's why they're there, because he no. had a deal on it for the Magic Christian. And they were, you know, Ringo and Peter Sellers were going to be filming there in February. So he had January. And it's like such a tail wagging the dog. And the Beatles are miserable. They just finished doing the White Album like two months earlier. I mean, it really, yeah. it had just come out. And, uh, you know, it's this double album. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, here, come up with a new album that we're going to film your process in a miserable circumstances because we got this deal on this terrible studio. To make a terrible film. Yeah, I don't mean is... the Beatles film. I'm talking about the Magic Christian. What a right. crock that was. Jesus. But anyway, that <laughs> aside, that's astonishing. I didn't realize how tight fisted the whole thing was. You know, it's just like it's the Beatles. They got millions somewhere. Somewhere there's millions to spend on, you know, making those guys comfortable and, uh, and put them in a creative mood. But no, we've got to save some money here already. Did you ever experience that with XTC by any chance? Sort of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was back in the early days. I remember rehearsing uh, Drums and Wires when I, when I first joined the band. This is uh, early months of 79. And uh, we were under, we rehearsed that album and the singles. Nigel and uh, and all the other songs on that album were rehearsed in the basement of the manager's nightclub. It was a concrete bunker basically, right next door to the to a Chinese restaurant whose kitchen was also just the other side of the wall. So you'd hear all these pots and pans bashing away on the mm. other side of the wall, and we'd be set up around Terry Chambers' drums with a single-bar electric fire, you know, trying to keep warm. <laughs> but in those days, we didn't mind. That was fun. You know, we were doing something. We were actually not having to go out to work. To, to work nine to five for somebody else. We weren't, you know, we were finally achieving, we, somebody was paying for us to stay home and, and write songs and make music uh, and do what we love doing best today. And we, if that meant putting up with a bit of cold and frostbite, we'd do it. <laughs> So what was the what was the dynamic like when, you know, Andy and Colin would come in with songs? I mean, was it sort of a formal presentation, like you'd be sitting in a circle and Andy, wants, Andy would say, well, here's one of mine. And then Colin would say, here's one of mine. Or, or how did that work? Yeah, that's pretty much how it was. Uh, there were no, at that time, there were, I don't think anybody had any home recording facility. There was no Porter studio, nothing like that. They had cassette players and recorders, but it would, the demos such as they were, would mainly be 
one guy sitting around a microphone with an acoustic guitar singing a tune. What are we going to do with this? And then we'd knock it around for a few days. And uh, the word came from the record company that they needed a single, have you got anything? So I, think I seem to remember there were a, a four songs we recorded in a local studio. This, was, this was, wasn't in the basement. This was a local facility uh, based in the town hall. And we, we recorded uh, Life Begins with the Heart, Making Plans for Nigel. Chain of Command, I think, was one of them. Uh, I can't remember the other offhand. I should have my notes here, but I haven't got them. It's a long time could, ago now. Could be, could be Limelight. I don't know. That was. Yeah, it might have been. They've all been released on uh, various right. <laughs> boxes. God knows what else. Uh, they've been remastered demos and stuff. They're all out there somewhere. And then they make a, make a cassette of those and post them off to the record company and then word would come back a few days later okay well we like such and such a song can you can we uh can we attempt this for the next single and so that would be pretty much how it was it was uh at the time as i say we had management at the time who were our conduit as, as it were to the ANI department at virgin records so we had very little involvement with them on a personal basis uh we just did as, was, as as we were asked. They never insisted on, um, you know, us recording covers or, or, or throwing other songwriters our way. They were always quite happy to entertain what we were doing. We had a lot of support from the company in the early days. So when Andy Partridge and Colin Molding would present songs, what kind of shape were they in? And, and was this sort of, were they similarly developed or did one of them have them sort of more arranged than the other one? Uh they they kind of changed shape in rehearsal and and one song that changed shape more than anything else i think was making plans for nigel which became you know our first sort of breakthrough hit at least in the uk right um, um colin had uh, he had an acoustic guitar and he sat on a chair and played us this song and he had this little hook we're only making plans for nigel we thought oh that's cute yeah hmm. that's that's a hook Let's um, let's work on this a little bit then. But he had all he had was acoustic guitar and the chords, and so um, Terry was sitting there and he's sort of playing a pattern along with uh, along with the, the melody and the chords. He's getting into it. And then Andy suddenly says, "Terry, why don't you when you what you're doing on the hi hat there? Why don't you play that pattern on one of the floor toms and do the uh, the tom pattern on the hi hat? Just switch it round." Mm. And that became a hook in itself. That's the intro to the song that draws everyone in. It's brilliant. Right. Then Colin eventually, um, you know, I figured out the chord shapes and everything and worked out my little part. And uh, Andy had this little chirruping, little chirruping <laughs> guitar line, which is very much him. You know, it's a, least amount of effort he'd just hold his hand on the neck like that and he'd just sort of he would it wouldn't move you know any tune <laughs> just happen around one position on the guitar so he wouldn't have to move his arm too much <laughs> he's brilliant at that um and then colin eventually picked up his bass and he's he was sort of thumping these eights on the bass guitar and we had a groove going it sounded really good so I thought, yeah, I can. So that's how we did the demo. But the, the, the next stage from that point forward, I suppose that would only have taken a couple of days to have worked that out. 
Did you then come up with a do 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 do? No, that's Andy. That's uh, his. He's playing lead guitar. All I'm doing on that is the sort of slashing rhythm guitar and tying the bass line. Uh, you know, the, the, I'm sort of playing a, a single note bass line underneath Colin's uh, quavers. Boom, 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 boom. It's sort of boom, boom, bap, bap, boom, boom, bap, bap, boom, boom, bap, bap. That's my groove. Got it. But all when- the other little. The tunes, the lead guitar lines are all Andy, and and he's also doing the. Yes, <laughs> he had to leap in with that, you know, just in case anyone forgot he was there. <laughs> there are a few times I've I've sort of noticed that we're like, ah, there's the Andy insertion. Um, so at this point, so so XCC has put out uh, their first two albums with Barry Andrews on keyboards, and uh, so uh, White Music and Go To, and then then you joined for Drums and Wires, which, in a way, to me is the first real XCC album because everything kind of comes together. As far as I'm concerned, on that, I mean, there's good stuff on the other ones. You, you've joined this established band. Obviously, you're this guitarist, although it turns out that you prove yourself a pretty formidable keyboard player as well. Um, as when when you joined, was there sort of some sense of like I have to figure out how to fit in, you know, maybe you know how to complement what's already going on, or did you just sort of jump right in and know what you were doing and feel confident about it? Before, well, when they asked me to come along initially to for for what, passes as an audition or whatever it was, uh, of course, all I had was those first two albums to listen to, so I was attempting to adapt Barrett, some of Barry's keyboard lines onto guitar which wasn't easy. Right. I was trying to just sort of um, interpret what Barry was doing as a guitarist might interpret it, just in order to get through the songs. And so um, we, we had this get-together and it all went very well. And we, were all, but we were friends, you know. It was almost like a social gathering. There was nothing really formal or pressured about it. It was almost as though they'd made up their minds that um, I was the guy to help keep the thing going because, you know, there was a momentum building and they didn't want to lose that. And they didn't want to hire somebody who might uh, disrupt or derail the project uh, with their own agenda. Andy and I had been friends for a while. He knew the way I played and he knew what I could do. He also knew that I was a big fan and had been for a number of years before they even got signed. So he was happy to have me in the band as a friend. And then we uh, got together and had this thing and it's like, okay, Greg's, well, look, we've got to do a BBC radio session next week. Um, it's at the BBC. We'll do uh, these, I can't remember what the four songs were. I think Spinning Top was one of them. They were four, four songs from Go To, I believe. Uh, and uh, it was for a, a DJ called uh, Andy Peebles. And so I had to go out to work. I was doing, still working a day job. I went out to work and came back from my uh, mail delivery van driving job. Uh, hopped in my car and drove up to London for this evening session at the BBC at Maida Vale Studios. And that was kind of a recording test for me, I suppose. Anyway, I got through it. I got away with it, I should say. And they said, uh, "Okay, well, we'll we'll make a we'll we'll get you to meet the manager, and you can have a chat with him about you know money and so on." Do because I, I literally that month 
bought my first house or put a down payment on it and had a mortgage to pay. So I wasn't sure whether I could afford to join this band. Uh, But as it turned out, um, I was able to sort of scrape by. I I was making, I think what I was being paid when I joined was about half what I was taking home from my delivery round earnings. But it was a lot less hard work and a lot more enjoyable. So I didn't mind. And I was doing my dream job, you know, giving me this opportunity. I didn't know how long I was going to last. I mean, what about the fans? They're expecting another keyboard player. Those two albums are, you know, the keyboard is the major part of the sound. It's it's defined by that quirky little farfisa thing. My guitar didn't sound anything like that. Even my adaptation of those parts doesn't sound remotely like it. Right. I, I saw something with you where you described yourself at the time as an R&B guitarist. Is that how you saw yourself? Yeah, British R&B, not, not the sort of soulful American R&B. Uh, R&B in terms of, uh, remember, Dr. Feelgood and uh, the Pirates. These were bands who were basically pub rock bands. They were The music was sort of very, very simple, down to earth for playing in small venues like pubs. And it was big in England in the mid-70s. Uh, it was pre-punk, guitar-based rock and roll. And right. uh, it was most, mainly cover versions of old American, uh, you know, Chuck Berry and R&B, R&B as, and the Rolling Stones, that kind of vibe, you know, the early, uh, the early Rolling Stones kind of stuff, Got but it. with more, more guitar, more to the fore. And so, yes, that was the gig I was doing right throughout 1978. Prior to that, I'd been in a prog rock band. Uh, uh, and that was about a, just over a year I was with them. But of course, we didn't work because in 1976, no one was booking progressive rock bands. We were a three-piece with a Hammond organ, guitar and drums. And it was great, some great music. I thought we made some great music. We could not get any work at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It was dead and buried prog. So when I ran out of money, I had to come back to Swindon and get a proper job. Uh, fortunately, my parents were happy to take me in, give me my old room back. And so I went out to work, and that's, that's really what I was doing with this van driving job, delivering mail order parcels and playing with this R&B music in the evenings. Were um, you a musician who craved the spotlight, or did you just more just dig into the music and shy away from the kind of you know standing out front aspect of it? I never wanted to be the lead singer. I just wanted to be uh, important as a guitar player. And I was more than happy to stand in the background while other people were centre stage and, you know, sort of drawing attention to the music, shall we say. (laughs) I was more than happy as a supporting player to good singers. And I've always felt that way because I can't sing to save my life. Might as well confess now. Otherwise, I'd have my own solo career. Uh, but I was I I just loved the guitar. I loved the fact that uh, all my favourite bands were bands with really capable guitar players in them, and uh, and I loved the fact that I was being given an opportunity. Because Andy's a great guitarist, uh, but of course because he was so busy singing and performing, quite often there was stuff that he wasn't able to do or needed needed some help in some areas as a, as, as a player. 
and he would be quite happy to hand that role to me. It would only quite often only be eight bars in a song, but that was all right. It was fine. I mean, was just, we were, I thought we made a great noise together. I think our styles are very different as players, but I think as a guitar team, I think we worked really well. Well, it seems like you were just such a complimentary player. And, and, and like there was some point where on Twitter some years ago, someone said, if you were starting a band with anyone, who would you put in? And I think I might have even said Dave Gregory, because it just seems like your contribution to each of these songs is kind of so perfect and just sort of boosts it up. And yeah, yeah, Andy has this kind of choppy, you know, gnarly guitar sound. And then you'll come up with this other sort of fluid counterpoint and it's melodic and it's memorable, but it also... It, 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 there's never the sense of showboating for you, like, oh, look at this virtuo virtuoso, it's time for like the, the guitar solo that you're going to plot at the end afterwards. But then when you sort of step back and you listen, you're like, oh, that guitar solo on, you know, Supergirl is really good, or that that riff on Earn Enough for Us, or, you know, any of these songs, you know, the playing on, I mean, I could just start naming songs. They have, they have very memorable parts to them, and they're complementing what the song was when it was brought in, I'm assuming. Well, thank you. I think we were all aware of our limitations as players. None of us is a virtuoso or anywhere close to being that. Andy would always, in fact, both Andy and Colin, great, um, what's the word, melodicists, fans of melody. They insisted right. on melody at all times. So if you take a solo, make sure it's, you know, think of a tune, come up with something that's uh, complementary to the song that isn't just a bunch of cliches and um, and this this kind of resonated with me I thought well, actually that's a really smart idea because it can become part of the song and people will know when to expect that separate melody in the middle of the song between the verse and the chorus or whatever it is somewhere in the middle of the song there'll be another theme and that was kind of something that I always uh, from that from from point of of joining XTC because I'd never really wouldn't have occurred to me prior to that had Andy not sort of pointed it out because he hated any kind of choppism or clicheism or any of those R and B. There's the, the the hilarious well, there's that little incident I mentioned in the documentary about earning that has become quite a popular theme on Facebook. I notice when. Quite often, people refer to me, you know, no earning now, Dave. <laughs> Just this this old cliche that R and B guitar players quite often fall back on. You can you hear it all the time. So that was the thing, no earning, and hmm. uh, that, that developed into well, you know, come up with a theme, come up with a tune, and it might only be eight bars, but it'll um it'll have an effect. And, and he's he was right, you know. I mean, uh, it. It changed my thinking and made me think a lot more seriously about what I was doing rather than just showing off for the sake of it. So from Drums and Wires to Black Sea, did your contributions change, do you think, like in terms of the amount you're contributing or the kinds of stuff you're contributing? Uh, I think Black Sea, we worked more, worked harder as a team. I can think of... Uh, yeah, I'm, burning with optimism's flames, for example. There's two very distinct guitar motifs running through that song. Right. Um, and he had already written a solo for it, this little jazz thing that he played with his uh, finger style. It was really gorgeous. And the same with the uh, Paper and Iron. That was another one. I had a great riff. And I was getting more into um, 
experimenting with guitar tone, which Andy didn't really pay any attention to. He, he, I don't think he was a, a big fan of rich tone because it was too bluesy, you know, it was too, too another kind of cliche, you know, this kind of fluty, sustained, howling guitar. I think he's become more acquainted with it since. But at the time, things had to be rhythmic and tight, you know, so the two parts had to bounce off each other and uh, and, and work as a, as a team. And I think we probably had, you know, having, having toured drums and wires and done a lot of stage work together, that was becoming apparent. You know, I was learning how he was going to play and I think vice versa, he knew what I was right. actually doing. So we both accommodate, accommodated each other's styles within our own uh, uh, within our own playing um, what's the word <laughs> yeah we listen to each other the nice, major yeah. what for so for and Colin's song generals and majors has about five different huge hooks in it all of which sort of overlap at the end how much of that was there when he brought in the song and how much did you and you know everyone else sort of come up with as you were performing it or rehearsing it yeah, well, that's a good question because generals and majors, again, Colin brought that in with acoustic guitar and he just strummed through the chords. And uh, I'm thinking, yeah, well, this this has got a nice bounce to it. I don't know. I'm thinking uh, I really like um, what Steve Cropper did with the Barquets, some of those records. Mm. There's, there's like... Um, uh, there was a song, um, well, a little bit like "Time Is Tight," that kind of groove. Not that, not the same tune. But I was thinking Steve Cropper, so I came up with this uh, little riff on the uh, on the low strings there, and we're running through this thing. And uh, Steve Warren, who was our stage guy, our roadie at the time, said to me, "Who, David?" That's bloody good tune you were playing there. You want to keep that? You want to keep that? But, oh, do you like it? It's because nobody else said anything. This was the mm. whole thing. You throw, you play stuff, you throw it out there and hope someone jumped on it. Nobody jumped on it except Steve, God bless him. <laughs> so I kept playing. Every time we, we ran it through, I played that riff. And then Andy thought, he, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. So he decided he'd put a high harmony on this riff that I was playing. But bing, 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 bing. That's a big, big hook now. That's the that's right. the main motif of generals and majors. So there you are. There's a band at work, and that's how a rehearsal brought a fairly, I won't say mundane tune. It's it's a good song. It's a good song, but I think it's enhanced. Uh, I think the guitars really made it a, a, a pretty damn good song. Yes, and then you have the whistling. Yeah, that's right. And I think. Who came up with the whistling? And it's interesting because sure. Steve Lily White produced that album and he just done the third Peter Gabriel record, which had yeah. Games with Tears, which also had whistling. So I always thought, okay, is this like a did Steve Lily White be like, you know, we, we need some whistling on this? Or did you guys just come up with that too? Because that's another hook. It is a hook. Yes, that's right. Uh, and also there's that deep voice humming. That was a guy who uh, was one of the maintenance people at the, at, um, no, I think he worked in the, in the kitchen, Step Lang, his name was, big tall Scots fella with a very deep voice. He's the one humming? So we, he's humming in the choruses. <laughs> and mm. I think the whistling, most of the whistling was Hugh Padgham because he had the best whistle. 
because it's not easy whistling, uh, especially on mic. There's <laughs> a skill to it. Who came up with that idea? I honestly can't remember. It wasn't me. It might have been Colin. So, and then and after Black Sea, you had English Settlement, which is sort of a bigger album and more kind of textures in that as well. Did you have the sense of the band kind of progressing at this point? Like, were you happy with where everything was going? Oh, yeah, very much so. We, uh, we'd done these two, well, we toured Black Sea to death. By the end of 1980, we'd really had enough of Black Sea. Uh, but another tour was planned for spring of 81, and we went out and did it. And Andy was really, really getting very frustrated, not only about having to go out and, and do the, all this touring work, but we weren't seeing any money. We were not seeing any proper money. We were being paid a wage. We were getting by. We're thinking, hang on a minute. You know, we've, we've got two albums out in America and in this country that are doing okay. They're not million sellers, but they're making money. Sure. Where is sure. it? So uh, this is playing on Andy's mind as well as the rest of us. But he was he was the most concerned about it. So he was reluctant to do any more live work until we'd sit, sit down with the management to discuss business. And, uh, you know, it was just constantly, it was impossible, basically. Um, we would then, we, not only that, we were also getting a little bit tired of two guitars, bass and drums. What can we do with the skills that we have now? Maybe we should be thinking more in terms of uh, keyboards and some different guitar textures rather than just two electric guitars. I'd been looking for a long time for a Rickenbacker 12 string. Uh, I was The reason it had taken a long time is because I wanted one like George Harrison played in Hard Day's Night or that exact model without realising... <laughs> how few of them were ever made. I think they only made about half a dozen. Mm. And they, because they never came up for sale, never, ever. Eventually, I kind of abandoned that plan, but I thought, well, there's plenty of new Rickenbackers, and I'm sure I can find a used one that I can afford. And sure enough, I found this gorgeous black 36012 in the summer of 1981 that I think I paid 300 pounds for. And... Um, straight away i mean it, it was a pig to play but i just loved the sound of it I just, i'd work and work and work at it just for the joy of hearing the sound that it made at the same time andy had um given away a guitar an acoustic guitar as part of a prize so he didn't have an acoustic guitar he bought a new acoustic i think it was a yamaha acoustic guitar and he again fallen in love with this thing and decided you know he'd, he'd write start writing songs, new songs for the new album on this new guitar. So we were both in kind of new toy syndrome and Colin too also because we've been working with the police and Sting had been playing fretless bass, Colin thought, yeah, I can probably use fretless bass too. I, and he bought himself an Ibanez fretless bass. Mm. So here we are, we've got Rickenbacker 12 string, electroacoustic and fretless bass sounding almost like an upright bass. The one thing that ties us to the original XTC sound, of course, Terry Chambers drums. So as long as we had Terry, still XTC, and we'll just, um, you know, see how these things fit on top of Terry's Black Sea drums. And it worked. 
uh, we were lucky, very, very lucky to get Hugh to help us co-produce and engineer the album. Um, the record company gave us six weeks at the manor and it was just uh, glorious. Actually, I did a podcast with Hugh for um, one of the XTC fan sites and we we went over this track by track and just agreed that it was a, a really magical time and everything was going our way and, you know, Hugh, God bless him, he, he, at the time he when we loaded into the Manor studio to make that record, the day we loaded in, he had an album at number one with uh, Ghost in the Machine by the police, and another one at number three, Abacab by Genesis. So right. he had two right. records in the top five in, in the UK. And yet here he was back at the Manor with four, four twerps from Swindon. <laughs> so thank you, Hugh. <laughs> we owe you for that. And it, it worked, you know, he made a great record. We were, we were all really happy with it. All the flights of fancy, flights of fancy that we had about experimenting with new guitars, different sounding instruments. We had a Prophet synthesizer as well. We were using some some of that, and also the grand piano in the Manor Studio, which I fell in love with. We made some some use of that too. So we were expanding. And already I could tell Andy was thinking, well, we won't be able to re reproduce this on stage. Uh, we're going to have to either get some extra musicians on board or just come off the road and make records from now on. I didn't realise that was quite was, uh, in the back of his mind, but it turns out that's what happened. I mean, you did tour, tour that album though, right? We got halfway around a tour of Europe. And I have to say, we'd never really cracked Europe as a touring band. Uh, we hadn't sold that many records over there. But I can honestly say all the gigs we played, I think we must have played about seven or eight shows, were just, well, it was just brilliant. The, the audiences just embraced us. Never happened before. So we thought, yeah, this is it. This is the album that's going to tip us over the edge and hopefully, you know, provide some kind of living for us at some point. You know, they were new, brand new songs and they all worked. We could, they were, we could play them on stage. Just the, four of hits, you. just the four of us. And uh, we had a hit song in England with Senses Working Overtime, which was great. You know, we were on top of the pops doing all that, giving it loads. So we just felt kind of uh, invincible, I think. We just felt very, very optimistic about 1981 and, uh, sorry, 1982 and what it might have to offer us. And, well, yeah, the rest is history. Uh, and he couldn't cope with it for whatever reason. And so um, we, did, we did travel to the States. I think we played one show in San Diego. Again, the audience, it was almost like Beatlemania. We didn't play well. I can remember we hadn't rehearsed and we were still very wobbly. It wasn't a great show by any, but not by our standards. And yet the audience totally loved it. And then the next day, Andy says, look, I can't do any more of this. I've got to go home. I'm really, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm cracking up. I can't cope with this performing business anymore. I need a long rest and then we can decide what we're going to do. And I was rather hoping that after his long rest, he'd get the munchies for, you know, the, the, the audience adulation, the cheering and all the rest that goes with it. But he never did. And so uh, from that point forward, 
we just had to adopt plan B and just make records, which was fine, better than doing nothing. I was more than happy to do that. I would have loved to have gone out and played, but it, it wasn't worth risking somebody's health. Uh, I'm certainly not a creative person, a sensitive and creative person like Andy. Right. It's not, you can't really force them to, to do that kind of work if they're not happy. It's interesting because when you see clips of him performing, he, unlike the way you described yourself, looks like he totally basks in being in the spotlight, but it sounds like it also was taking a tremendous toll on him at the same time. So he had to be sort of upfront and the center of attention, but then on the other hand, it was making him crazy. Yeah. It's a, a, a really odd dichotomy. I, I can't explain it. If Andy's in a room, with, regardless of who else is there, he'll make sure he's the center, center of attention. He always sort of, <laughs> I don't know, it's just a weird ego thing, I suppose. He just has to be the center of attention. And he can be ex really entertaining. But bear in mind, I've not seen him face to face for about 13, 14 years. We wow. currently have a reasonable exchange, cordial exchange of emails from time to time. So we're kind of friends, but not bosom buddies anymore. And we don't, uh, we don't meet or socialize. Are um, you in so, Sweden, by the way? Yeah, we're still, still all here. And, so all, um, all three of you are living in Swindon, but none of you see each other. Well, all four of us are, because Terry oh, Chambers is back. Yeah, he's back. But we never see each other, no. None of you. I mean, Colin and Terry did their shows together, and then Terry's doing his XEXTC thing yes. now, it sounds like. I have seen Terry, yes. I've seen him from time to time. And I saw him play uh, with one, one it iteration of XTC just before lockdown in 2020 uh, in a local venue in Swindon. And uh, yeah, they were good. They were very good. And it was nice to see Terry actually playing again. But I gather that the lineup has changed since then. And they've, uh, yes, they've gone, come to the States, I believe, next year. Yeah, provided they're let in. <laughs> right. He had this reputation as sort of a basher, but you listen to English Settlement, and there's a lot of inter intricate uh, drum work on that record. It's not just like yeah. all four on the floor or the pisu-pisu thing you guys talk about. No, and he's uh, actually one of Hugh Padgham's favorite drummers, and he's worked with Phil Collins. So when Hugh tells you Terry's a great drummer, you, you pay attention, and he really is. I mean, for XTC, I can't imagine anyone else playing as well as he did on stage uh, we, we've worked with some tremendous drummers since he quit, uh, but we never actually got around to uh, playing live with any of them, but apart from Dave Maddox when we did a, a little television show with him in 92, I think that was. That was the last time we appeared in public. And um, it was just a television late show thing. We did a live version of Books of Burning. Right. I saw that on, on, you can watch that on YouTube people. So that's there. But yeah. Cause it's because there's so few live clips, obviously from you yeah. guys post 1982. Um, were you, were you surprised that Terry ended up out of the band like a year later? Yeah, uh, we, we were, we were all a bit, um, you know, Terry, Terry isn't a quitter, but I think he just felt he, he listened to what Andy had to say about 
not wanting to perform live. Well, that's all Terry wanted to do was perform live. He's, he's like me. He's not a songwriter. He's a player and he loves playing drums. And I guess XTC was this, the perfect band for him. So when Andy announced, well, that's it. We're not going to do any more touring. I'm just going to make records from now on. Uh, Terry wasn't happy, but but then he had um, there were there were influences from other areas. Basically, he was he's marrying an Australian girl, and he was planning to move to Australia. So he said, I remember we were rehearsing some songs for what was to become the album Mama. I think we'd recorded two songs with Terry, uh, maybe a few more, maybe uh, maybe four. We did a couple of B-sides as well. And uh, one day he's just sat and put his sticks down and said, look, I'm not happy with the way things are going here. I think I'm going to go. I'm going to leave now. I'm going to go back to Australia with my wife-to-be and um, I'll see you guys later. Yeah, XCC quits touring. Terry Chambers is out of the band, and that's kind of the end of this act. And then, and then you, and then from then on, you have these, you know, different drummers who you're bringing in on Mummer and Big Express. Um, I always felt, I, I felt like at the time because I'd, I'd gotten into you and I was in college, and I remember going into the Student Union uh, record store, and there was this brightly colored Dukes of Stratosphere thing that I've never heard of, and there's a little sticker on it that said it's XTC, and I said, oh, and I picked that up. And I mean, I'm, I think I shared this with you, but I'm total sort of 60s nerd in terms of just loving that period of music. I mean, and, and I just, I love that, that EP so much. And I, frankly, I liked it more than the Big Express, which I, has some great songs on it, but has to me kind of a colder sound to it than I was used to. And I felt like the Dukes kind of re jumpstarted you guys, like that there was this element of creativity in doing the Dukes of Stratosphere and wearing these different caps that then sort of carried over into XTC regrouping to do Skylarking and then another Dukes record and then Oranges and Lemons. And then it all kind of was this, you know, expanding the boundaries of the sound of XTC and, you know, the instruments you were playing and the way you approached arrangements and songwriting. Absolutely. Yes. No, you nailed it there. And I can remember some a reviewer saying um, at the time, <laughs> XTC revealing their roots may well betray them. Uh, as though, you know, all the stuff we'd gone up to that point, done up to that point, was really keeping up with trends or attempting to, which wasn't quite true. But, you know, you always remember those formative years, those school days. Uh, we were all deeply indebted musically uh, to, to the Beatles and the Stone and the Kinks, especially the Kinks. Beatles and the Kinks, I think those two bands most important influence on everything XTC uh, did ever. And so uh, the Dukes, it was like suddenly we were, let's just have, it was, it was a bit of fun. We had two weeks in a cheap studio with this great engineer and producer, John Leckie, who's still right. a great friend. And he's, he's just brilliant. Everything he does is, everything he touches is magic. He knew exactly what we were going for. He was as keen to do that record as we were, and we had two weeks to do it, and it, it just uh, changed our fortunes. Like you said, Big Express, 
would have been, yes, it's not my favourite sounding album. I think there's a good album in there. It just needs a remix and a remaster. And uh, just because it was it was recorded analog, but it was mixed to DAT, tiny DAT cassette. That's where the, that's the final stereo master is. Mm. And we can't find all the original multi-tracks. Oh, no. They, a lot of them are missing. So much as we would love Stephen Wilson to get his hands on it and do a, a proper remix and a remaster and a 5.1 and all the bells and whistles. And it's not possible at this point because we can't find the multi-tracks. So there, then the same applies to Mummer as well. Both of those albums have... Uh, and English Settlement, too. I, I understand one of the reels is gone somewhere. But right. Yeah, I've noticed that that one has not had the big deluxe package like the other one. Uh, I, I, think I, the, I think I did pick up the 200-gram vinyl version, which, you know, I mean, I have the original British vinyl of it, too, which sounds very good. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've been under the impression someone's looking for this stuff under crates and in basements or something. I hope it turns up. Well, yeah, I'd love to know who took it and where it went, because I'm very... Uh, frustrated with the record company for just failing to look after their property. And as I've said many times, you read through your contract and every other page will remind you that all your rights belong to the company. They own everything forever and ever in whatever universe now or in the future. End of story. You have nothing. You own nothing. You've paid for everything. You own nothing. And yet they can't even tell you where these masters are and what's happened to the property. So mm. as, as a human being, that really, really gets up my nose. But apart from that, we still got the original master. The records are still there. I still prefer the first prints of everything we ever did. I, apart from uh, maybe uh, the reissues of Non-Search and Oranges and Lemons which I think Stephen Wilson really, really did a, a magnificent job on. Having said that, going back to the Dukes, suddenly we were cut free. We didn't have to worry about, or we didn't have time to worry about very much. You know, it was like, do we, we, well, we've got this studio. John can get us the studio. Won't cost a lot of money. We've got a budget of £5,000. Uh, when are we going to get a drummer? So well, my brother plays drums. He plays in a 60s band, doing 60s covers the whole time. He understands this music. He'd be fine. Okay, let's get Ian in. Ian was happy to come in. He took a couple of days off work to do his drum tracks. <laughs> and we piled into this tiny studio in Herefordshire, way, way off the beaten track. And uh, it, everything just fell into place like magic. It was just brilliant. I, it's one of the... You know, the most fun I've had in a recording studio, I think, ever. It comes across. I mean, it's just like there's so much invention and so many funny little parts in there, but it's not jokey. It's it's done with this kind of loving, you know, uh, I'm just this is appreciation for that period of music and and just the just the little details in there and little effects and everything else but like their effects from like this low-tech era where you know now people would just sort of push a button for the effect but you know you guys are turning things backwards and running them through different filters and you know you're playing like this sort of nicky hopkins piano part on your gold dress and and you sound like a rocking band too i mean your brother fits right in i mean you know 
you know, my love explodes is like a great rocking XTC <laughs> song and, and 25 o'clock totally takes off. And you've got that, you know, guitar solo in that one too. Yeah, no, it's such fun. It was really, but you say it's not, um, there's nothing, it, it wasn't, it was intended as a joke. We didn't really want people to, um, assume this was the next XTC release. In fact, we said right. to the record company, you mustn't promote this as XTC because it will ruin our career. <laughs> In fact, it had the opposite effect. I, I sent a copy of this to, because I, I, I've been for, we're leading up to Skylarking now. I've been a fan of Todd Rundgren right throughout the, the I was late coming to his music, but throughout the, the 80s. He saved the 80s for me, just going back through his catalogue and picking up on everything he'd done. I thought, oh, geez, I've missed, how could I have missed this music? Because it's just so great. And uh, I thought he he put out this album with a utopia called Deface the Music. You right. probably know they, sort of, they do these parodies of Beatles songs quite brilliantly, I have to yes. say. So I thought, well, if this is in a similar ballpark to what we've just done, I'm going to send a copy to his management and see if he see if he likes it, just as a fan, which I did. And of course, I heard nothing back. And then in, uh, uh, that's no, we'd actually, yeah, now I'm getting a bit ahead. Yeah, that's right, because we'd actually met Todd in this, on, on the last American tour that we did in the spring of 81. He'd come backstage to, to visit us uh, after a Utopia show in Chicago. And so we had actually met him very, very briefly. And I was astonished, you know, this man's actually, he knows who we are. I couldn't believe it. So that was the reason I thought he'd enjoy listening to this uh, 25 o'clock. So I posted it off, he heard nothing back. And uh, then when uh, we were casting around for a producer for Skylarking, or what would become Skylarking, um, Virgin Records wanted an American to produce it because, you know, they're saying, look, you can't, you've sold as many records as you're going to sell in the UK and it's not enough. You've got to start selling records in the States. That's a huge market. And you need to tap into it. So we're going to get you an American producer for this next record. And eventually on this list of names that uh, they reeled off is Todd Rundgren. And so he, Todd wants to produce us. He's up for producing a record for us come on, we can't waste this opportunity. We've got to go with Todd, please, Andy. Just if, <laughs> if, even if it's a complete disaster, just give us this one opportunity. Look, he produced the New York Dolls, look what he did for them. And uh, Andy sort of, he's stroking his chin, don't know. Anyway, we were able to convince Andy this would be a great idea, which it was. It was the most perfect idea because Todd, that point, our career was teetering on a knife edge. As far as the record company were concerned, they were ready to uh, drop us if we didn't start selling serious quantities of records. I'm wondering whether the uh, hearing the Dukes of Stratosphere might have just piqued his interest in working with us. But he did seem to know a lot about our back catalogue as well. So um, that, that, was, that was to our advantage. He famously is headstrong and Andy is headstrong and they were butting those headstrong heads together, but they came out with a, a fantastic record. It was, well, it, it saved us, you know, it was a risk. It was, it was, we took a big risk spending all that money going all that way, all that way from home. 
first time in the states recording and uh you know we didn't know we didn't know todd on a personal level so it was a question of well you know he's got this track record and you know i just wanted to uh i just want to see how he worked what made him tick and i wanted to be in the place where a lot of that all those utopia records that I've been digesting over the years had right. come from. This is all of that, all of that stuff. Walk into that little hut in his garden there, and there's all the multi-tracks in a rack by the side of the door. And I'm looking at, uh, you know, masters from, um, I'm not sure if there were any meatloaf masters there. There might have been, but they were all just stacked up by the way. Uh, on a shelf by the door, these big names written on them. I'm just looking mm. at, wow, there's, there's a whole heap of magic in there. And then there's that, the, 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 the Gibson SG, the full guitar that's just sitting there too. Well, there you are. That was the cherry on the cake for me. I couldn't believe, I mean, it was just out. If that was my property, that would be locked away somewhere, <laughs> except when I wasn't using it. No, it was just sitting on a stand in the control room. And I just stood and looked at it for five minutes. Oh, my God. Not just because it was Eric Clapton's guitar, but the stuff Todd had done with it since. You know, it, it's... Um, in fact, it was the first Gibson SG I ever saw, personally, as a kid, when Cream played on a show called D-Time. It was one of these sort of half-hour chat show things came on at 6.30 in the evening after the news, and they would always have a pop act on halfway through, and then and Cream rocked up doing Strange Brew, to have been in June, I guess, 67. And there's Clapton with his perm and his um, caftan, and Jack Bruce with gong hanging off his bass, and these brightly coloured guitars, and the sound. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is the sound you'd expect to hear an instrument that looks like that. Right. That's where the magic was. Did you have to work up the nerve to ask to play it? Uh, well, I assume because it was out and he, 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 he wasn't actually there when we arrived. He, he was still in, on the West Coast with his family. He said, just make yourself at home, uh, you know, muck about in the studio, get used to the place, blah, blah, blah. He was quite accommodating in that regard. And I just assumed because the guitar was there, it was there to be used and played right. and messed about with. So I was more than happy to just sit there with it in my lap and strumming it and what have you. Uh, I never plugged it in, I don't think, when Todd wasn't around. Um, so then, um, but eventually I, I, I said to Andy at some point, you know, we've got a, there has to be a place on the album for a guitar solo where I can hopefully ask Todd if I can use this guitar because it's just too good an opportunity to miss. And sure enough, uh, he was he was quite happy for me to use it. He was less happy about because it had actually, it had bronze acoustic guitar strings on it. And I went, why is he, what's this all about? Why is he, why has he got these? I can't play these, I only had a wound third. So I said, do you mind if I, uh, do you mind if I change the strings, Todd? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, I was able to, uh, I was able to convince him that the strings could do with changing. I don't know why he had uh, bronze wound strings on it. To this day, I've no idea. But anyway, so, and, 
So that's really, really super super girl is the song you played on with that. Yeah. And that's the only time it appears, right? Yes. I'd worked the solo out previously on a different guitar because I knew that it was an odd chord sequence. Not so much the sequence, but it was around a sort of an F6 chord. It was a it was an odd sort of uh, mode, at least for me. It was quirky. To, to use a well-worn XTC phrase, it was a quirky song that required a quirky solo. So I thought, right, I've got to it, th- put my quirky hat on. It's not quirky, You know, and uh, so I took the guitar, I took knives, no, actually worked out on a little uh, Epiphone Dwight that I'd mm. recently purchased and I'd taken over as a sort of um, TV for something to str- strum in my bedroom. So I had a sheet of manuscript paper and uh, this guitar and, a, and, a, and the instrumental track that, on a cassette that I'd been given. And I had that hooked up to my, I think it had a walkman. And, uh, and I thought, well, what would Andy do? <laughs> How would he start this solo? It'd be something dissonant. So that's basically, that's where I started with it. <laughs> That's kind of Andy-ish, and it sort of developed from there. And I just sort of worked away until I had something written that worked with the changes. And um, and then when we came to record it, Todd put the guitar through uh, some effect. I doubt it was plugged directly into a Tom Schultz rock man, if you remember those. Right. And from there, it went into whatever that wobbly thing is that's on all the Utopia guitar solos, whatever that was. I don't know what it is, but it's Todd's. I was happy for him to do it. I thought, <laughs> yep, it's great. That's perfect. And uh, people still comment on that. That little solo only lasts about 40 seconds, but it still comes up in conversation as uh, being a highlight of the album, which is, well, fantastic. Well, it's because it's it's perfect and yet it's totally unexpected. Like there's no way you could sort of think, oh yeah, that's where this is going to go. But it has, <laughs> it, but it's but it's this memorable part that just sort of gets in and gets out and and just like a, an indelible part of the song. Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about having to, yeah, as Andy would say, write a melody that works with the song, let that become part of the song. So it's a separate theme that's as much a part of the song as the verse and the chorus. I worked on a book about songwriting with another musician, uh, Steve Dawson. And one of the things that we were discussing in it was that line between songwriting and arranging um, and, you know, and being in a band and contributing a part versus actually being part of the songwriting. Where do you think that line is? And are there times where you were contributing parts? We thought, you know what? I co-wrote this song at this point. There's a couple of songs I could probably make a claim if I was that way inclined. The arrangement that we had was that the songwriter would take 50% of the publishing income and the remaining 50% would be divided three ways between the the other members of the band. So in other words, you know, if Andy had the main songwriting credit, he would provide half of his royalty to the rest of the band. That's how it worked originally when I joined. So it just made sure that everyone had something for contributing to the recording. 
I think that division of uh, payment changed over the years slightly, or in the in the songwriter's favour. But I've always had this issue about well, you know, there's this thing about there's an old saying, isn't there? Change a word, claim a third, which is hmm. kind of where it gets tricky because I know. I, I look at the songwriting credits on some of these modern recordings and it's like eight writers. How can they all have an equal share of whatever this song is? I'm thinking more of the, you know, dance music and stuff like that. Right. Modern pop, for sure. Modern pop, yes. And you look at the credits, half of the, half the paperwork in the CD jacket is taken up with lists of credits of people who've done God knows what. I, if I was a songwriter and someone had uh, just contributed a solo or, or, or changed a word or two, I would feel miffed about having to hand over half of my royalty to them. And I think this is what the issue is for so many bands, and it probably breaks up a lot of bands as well because, uh, you know, you have featured players. I'm thinking, um, I well, I don't really mean to single any artist out, but let's say David Lee Roth, when he hired Steve Vai, uh, he put Steve Vai on a wage. Uh, I don't think it was very much. It was like a weekly retainer. And then you listen to... Um, skyscraping or Eatman Smile, and that's as much Steve Vai's record as it is his. But I don't see, he doesn't get any publishing credit. I'm, I'm probably treading on thin ice talking about okay. this now. It's just the way I see things. You know what's selling. You should be able to tell what it is about a record that's the chief selling point. And uh, I don't know whether something as simple as a, a, a guitar solo or even just a, or a harmony vocal or whatever it is. On the other hand, you've got a band like U2 who split everything equally. Management and band all get the same share, always have done. And they're still together and they're as wealthy as, they're the wealthiest band ever. Right. Yeah, it seems like that's that that's sort of been a theme with a lot of bands. Uh, REM is another one where they just split everything. They were fine. Whereas the Go-Go's uh, split up after three albums in part because the singer was getting less money than everyone else and she was the center of attention. And, you know, there was this feeling of, you know, this is all lopsided. But when you start thinking so much about the contributions talking heads was like that too to some extent there was yeah there were there are these feuds about who contributed what and when you're and that and i would think that would be very inhibiting to your creative process if you're sort of keeping tabs of everything but on the other hand you know if you've written like the key riff of a song and then you get unrecognized i could see that would be frustrating too yeah well it might be for me i think i probably realized that you know, I'm not a songwriter, and I've been a songwriter, you know, God would have given me some good ideas for <laughs> me to be a songwriter. So I can't claim to be worthy of uh, credit in that regard. However, it's the band that sells the song. I think the band should be rewarded uh, adequately. Once we came into royalty, 
which didn't happen until 1995, let me tell you, we paid ourselves equally on record sales. Publishing, that was a different matter. Of course, there's a lot more money in publishing than there is in sales, plus you don't have to suffer recording costs. But I was actually kind of comfortable with that because, um, you know, I, I, I lived fairly frugally. I didn't have a family to support. And I was still, you know, doing what I loved doing best, being part of a group and making records. And if it meant living hand to mouth for a couple of years, that was okay. I didn't mind. And also, you know, I never, never lived beyond my means. In other words, I've lived rent free for about, from most of my career, basically from buying at the right time and not overextending, overextending my, my limit and saving money rather than pour it away on a mortgage or rent, you know? I just shoved it away until I could afford to pay cash for something. Which is why I stayed in this tiny, two up, two down, tiny little house in the centre of Swindon for 15 years. And I've been in this house now for 25 years. And it's all because, um, you know, I, 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 I'm probably in a better position now if I wanted to move. I could I could find somewhere a little bit bigger. But the housing market now has gone. This isn't, that's another issue. Fact right. is, live within your means and live comfortably and don't expect, don't expect anything more than you've already, <laughs> what you've already got. So a song like Earn Enough For Us, for instance, since we were talking about Skylarking, you have this great riff at the beginning of that song. Is that something Andy came with, in with or something oh. you came up with? Oh, that's something we sat around. I had half the riff. Uh, I was playing on 12-string guitar, leaving that sort of open G-string ringing. I was doing something like a sort of uh, like a droney thing, but it wasn't quite nailed. So I remember we were sitting around in the control room, Andy, Todd, myself, I think Colin was there as well. He probably would have been. And we're saying, come on, Greg, we've got to nail this. We've got to nail this intro because that's a hook. And uh, between us, somehow, it, uh, it, it locked together. It was, it was almost done, but not quite. The, but what I love about Burn Enough for Us is the groove. Prairie Prince, oh, what a great drummer. And then Colin came up with this bass line that was just perfect for the, for the song. And the guitars just bounced around each, uh, the, this groove. And it had just the right amount of twang and sturm and drang, as they used to call it. And I just think, I just, I just love that song for that reason alone. It's got a great twangy riff as well into the bargain. It's also a great side opener. I remember getting that. I think I'd picked up the British import of it before it was even available here and just flipping it over after season cycle and then starting side two with that, like in the old sort of four corners kind of thing where like the, the side two opener has to be a big one. I was like, ooh, that one just jumps right out of the speaker. And then it has that great sort of beetle ending too, where you just end on that chord. That's right. Well, Todd, uh, that's that ending is, of course, I want to hold your hand. And Todd just said, just play, um, don't play them, don't play the third, just play fifths. F four of those. Blang, blang, <laughs> dum, 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 dum. 
just over those four 12-string guitar chords. And that's a, that's a strong chord, your fifth. You know, that's that's the strongest chord there is. But just make sure it's in tune. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. Was there an argument at the time over whether to include Dear God on the record? Since I think Andy didn't want it and Todd did, and then radio station started playing it. So you, you guys had to sort of insert it later, or the, the company did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a deep embarrassment for all concerned, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Todd said, we haven't, we can't. It's odd that Todd would say this because God knows he's groove crammed. Half his, half his career onto one side of an album, but he didn't think there was room for that on side two of the album with "Earn Enough for Us." Sorry, with um, with another satellite. So one of them had to go, and Andy said, "Well, I really want this song." He said, "Another satellite isn't really um, it's outside the circle," as he put it. You know, it wasn't part of this passing day passing concept. Right, and he, and he dug his heels in and said, "No, I've got to have this. Must have it." So it was a case of, "Well, what are we going to take off then?" Well, take off, dear God, because I don't think it's uh, you know I haven't really said what I wanted to say with it. It's far too big a subject to be, you know, trivialized with a three-minute pop song. Ashamed of it. So let's put let's do something else with that. We'll use it as a B-side. So that's what happened. So the eventual outcome of that was that it's reinstated at the expense of Mermaid Smiled. Which is a great it's song. A magic, yeah, it's lovely. It's one of my favourite things he ever wrote. Really beautiful little song. Now with CD, you can have both. You know, it didn't matter. Once once with the digital process came in, you know, we can, you can get an hour of music on a CD. It's not an issue. But... For for two sides of vinyl, it was. Yeah, I still listen to the British import of that and would sort of hear Dear God on the radio. But but my my experience of that album was so much having Mermaid smiled in the middle of side two because it just is a kind of beautiful acoustic kind of flowing, you know, energy to it. Um, yeah, it's love. And it is a lovely song. Um, to to go back a few albums, uh, Yacht Dance is one where you're playing this nylon string guitar was, and that's so essential to that song was was that your idea to do that as well yeah i didn't own a, a nylon string guitar this is a mystery i'm i can't remember where that guitar came from i think it must have been collins because it we i, I used it for the session i it doesn't appear in my notebook uh, my i've made a sort of journal of the recordings from that album and uh, all i know is it's a it was a raimundo nylon string Spanish guitar. I hmm. uh, put some new strings on it. And of course, they kept going out of tune because they hadn't stretched in. So we had to keep stopping and <laughs> dropping in while I retuned the guitar. Um, and I used a soft nylon pick because I can't play finger style. I don't have the nails for it. And we, we didn't take long to record. Hugh did a nice job. He recorded it beautifully. Everyone liked it. And so the guitar was removed. I don't know. Maybe Colin took it home. Maybe it was his guitar. Hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's a mystery. But I did enjoy... Um, that's probably one of the songs. 
I might bring up if I was in a in an argumentative mood as being a potential co-write because I did write all those lead lines. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, guitar-wise on that that thing. Yeah, yeah. The steel string acoustic is Andy, including the little solo. I think all I did on it was the the nine on string. I don't think I played anything else. Mm. As the, as the process went on, so you, you have skylarking, then oranges and lemons, then none such. Is the is the process of Colin and Andy bringing in songs similar? Like I know that there are all these demos from that era, like skylarking. A lot of them have been released. So so those are being presented as demos as opposed to sitting around in a circle. Um, was there more of a sense of this is how I want it to be arranged? And then, I mean, obviously, Skylark, and you also had a producer who, you know, Todd Rundgren, who is getting very involved in the arrangements. But how did the sort of creative dynamic of the band change by then? It, it was the quality of the home recording equipment. It started with Tascam Porter Studios, which were little four-track cassette machines. Lots of demos were done that way from around 1980 onwards. And then came the uh, Alesis ADAT, 8-track digital recorder. And Andy had, uh, built, had a shed built in his garden that is it's still there, that is basically his recording studio. And this was equipped with a, an ADAT recorder. So from that point forward, um, the demos became very much worked up. Most of the point of, well, this is how the song's going to go and this is what you're going to be playing. He didn't to insist on too many guitar solos, I don't seem to remember. But the songs were a lot more fleshed out. And as you know, you know, the Fuzzy Warble series, most of those demos have now been released. So you can hear how the songs developed. Right. So yes, it, it did evolve. They became much more, more from Andy than Colin. Colin didn't really care for making demos, as I recall. I think he found it a bit of a nuisance. He, he'd rather bring it into the rehearsals room and hear what the band could do with his song which is great because you know we all had something to contribute and it didn't have to necessarily always be Andy's way so yeah there was there was pros and cons really there's obviously um the less finished the demo is the more opportunity for, for, for expression there is for the rest of the members of the band and perhaps the fact that we weren't a full-blown band at that time, with Terry gone, not having a regular drummer, and that Andy could program his own drums, and uh, and then we'd just sort of fall in with this, whatever it was he decided the groove was going to be. Then, you know, I remember going to, uh, when we went to Los Angeles to do Oranges and Lemons, we spent a good fortnight in rehearsal with Paul Fox and Pat Mastelotto going over arrangements. And there was a lot of stuff, you know, it wasn't as per the demo. It was a lot of work, a lot of input from everybody on most of the songs. So even though the demos became more fully fledged, there was still work to do. Right. And and you're playing a lot of different stuff on these too. You're not just playing the guitar, you're playing a lot of keyboards. You you did the string arrangement on Thousand Umbrellas, again, back on Skylarking. So so it's it seems like you're also finding more opportunities to be creative in fleshing out these songs. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Because, well, Thousand Umbrellas, that was a case in point. Andy, he'd been suffering a bit of writer's block. I think his daughter was born that summer of 85. 
that was probably a pretty major distraction for him. But he hadn't been writing very much. But he, he called me up one day and said, you know, I've got very little, I, I think I've written my last song, Greg's. Hmm. I've got this miserable thing. It's called uh, Thousand Umbrellas. It's just got this sort of descending chord thing. I don't know. I said, just put it on a tape, do us a demo and send us a cassette. And uh, I've just bought this sequencer, Roland MSQ100 sequencer. I'm anxious to try it out because I can, can, I can actually dial up a string quartet with some samples hooked up to this thing in MIDI. So I was still learning about MIDI and sequencing at this time. Let's see what I can do and see if I can, uh, you know, we can, we can cobble up a, a string arrangement in a kind of Eleanor Rigby style. Right. Right, then, well, yeah, okay, well, I'll do that. So he, he sent me this cassette and I started working. And uh, after about a week, he said, how are you getting on with that song? I said, well, I'm sort of making, making ways with it. Come and have a listen. So he came down and he thought, oh, oh, yeah. Tell you what, when you get here, can you just twiddle it up a bit? And, you know, it was all kind of layman's instructions about where things should be more florid and where things should, uh, you know, just, just little guides like that. So he did help me uh, in coming up with the finished piece. Uh, but there, because of the dissonant nature of his chords, it wasn't a straightforward arrangement in terms of, uh, you know, I had to listen very carefully. I, because I know the guitar and I knew I could tell what he was doing, I was able to figure out what notes were being incorporated in these descending chords and uh, make appropriate moves on the keyboard to accommodate that. And it took quite a lot of thinking about uh, but. What I, what I particularly love about that is this whole tone cascade thing in the middle of it. Then it resolves into this. I was pretty pleased with how it turned out. So in the in in the interim, he'd sent a bunch of demos to Todd Rundgren. Todd had come on board and said, Yeah, uh, I'm I'm happy to work with you guys. I've heard your demos. I think this is the album we should be making. And he sent back this uh, track listing of songs built from Andy's demos in the order they were going to be recorded out. They would appear on the record. He had it all sussed out in his head. But A Thousand Umbrellas wasn't there. So a bit disappointed with. But I thought, well, we'll do it next time. So we're halfway through, um, you know, Todd, Todd's place in Woodstock running through songs and running orders and so on and discussing this and that. And I said, Todd, have you heard um, A Thousand Umbrellas? Oh, yeah, I did hear that, yeah. But did, what did you think of the string arrangement? Strings? Y yeah, yeah, it's got, got, it's got mm. a string quartet on it. Oh, oh, no, I, my, my version doesn't have strings. I just got acoustic guitar and a voice. I didn't think it was that strong. So I whipped out my cassette with my demo on it. <laughs> what do you think to this? Oh, you want to do that? Okay, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Okay, well, uh, do you have the charts? No, but I can write them out. If I, you just leave me with a piano and some manuscript paper, I can, I can chart them out. Oh, yeah, no, that'll be, that'll be cool. 
let's do that here instead of something. I can't remember. You substituted something in the running order to accommodate it, which I was very grateful to him for, I have to say. And so uh, that's what happened. I sat at the piano with <laughs> pencil between my teeth, headphones, listening to each. There were four, four tracks, first violin, second violin, viola, cello. Mm. And it was a question for me having to sort of sync everything up on a piece of manuscript paper and then write out individual charts. Some time ago, I, I discovered those original charts and they're terrible. Really, <laughs> really student writing. For it, 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 and the fact that the musicians that played that ended up playing on the record were able to make head or tail of what I'd written. Actually, it wasn't that bad. But for example, I'd written the, the viola in the treble clef with ledger lines and things, which was really, really terribly unfair on the play. I didn't realise that the viola worked in the auto clef. I had no idea such a thing existed. <laughs> but it so, sounds great. And it makes perfect sense where it is on that album coming right after the Dolly for a rainy day. So yeah, the, yeah. the segue there is really nice and it, uh, it totally stands out on the record. Sure. I was really, really happy with it, I have to say. McCartney couldn't write charts either, and he did okay. That's exactly. I haven't spent any money on Sibelius or anything like that. I still handwrite everything. Have you done many other string arrangements since then? Oh, yeah, quite a lot. Uh, Most recently, I did one for Big Big Train, the band I was with until recently. And uh, we had... um, there was a song called East Coast Racer, which is one of the highlights of their catalogue. And I wrote most of that uh, string arrangement for that song. And we'd used a quartet and track them up. And it worked fine. Of course, the poor girls, after a day of doing maybe three or four passes of, of that long song, which is nearly uh, 20 minutes long, mm. you know, their fingers were like strawberry mousse. <laughs> so I felt really bad for them, I have to say because I don't suppose we rewarded them fully for the work that they did. Sounded fine, sounded great, uh, and and I was pleased with it. But then an opportunity came a a few years ago to do a full orchestral version, or sorry, no, it's a 16-piece orchestra in Abbey Road Number 2. We had three or four songs, and Greg Sporton, who'd written this song, said, look, your arrangement, we need to hear this with a proper orchestra in a in a in a in a proper studio can you can you provide us with the charts so i said yeah i can do that so i dug the, the original charts out and they were all handwritten and he looked at them and said you know can i take these to a um an orchestrator and have them printed out professionally because we've got a lot of work to do i don't want anyone to um use handwritten charts as an excuse for not playing professionally. These are great musicians. They're used to reading properly scored manuscripts. So if if I can get someone to do that, would you mind? So I said, no, you're fine. Do it, Greg. And of course, when I saw the quality of these manuscripts, when they came back, oh man, this is how it should be done. You know, it really, really, this Sibelius program or whatever it was they used is definitely the way to read music if you're in a hurry to get a, a chart done properly and professionally mm. has to be this legible. So I was 
I had my eyes opened at that point. I haven't done anything since then. I don't think, what have I done? Actually, I have done a couple. When you were still still in the band and you were and and you were you guys were preparing for what was going to be Apple Venus, um, which I realized you were not around for by the time they they came out. How how involved were the were you in the sort of or- orchestral side of that? Well, this is a bit of a thorny issue. Sorry, because at that point, yeah, things had uh, our relationship had kind of deteriorated between Andy and me. I was getting a little bit frustrated with, um, you know, him calling all the shots and and, and basically a lot of things had gone wrong in, in, the, in the process. The original plan was to do a double album, an orchestral album and a rock album, and release it as a double album. We didn't have a double album budget. So... I thought, right, well, that's, that's, we'll do what we can. We'll see if we can find an affordable studio where we can do all the basic tracks. And then, and, and, and just, just keep working until it's done and then just release whatever we've got finished. Well, there were no end of problems. This, was, this began in September of uh, well, 1997. God, such a long time ago. Um, and from that point forward, We'd, we'd been able to secure the services of Hayden Bendel. He's a brilliant musician, great engineer, and ex Abbey Road. He's a lovely fellow, very easy to work with, great musician, really easy to discuss musical points with. He was, he was perfect in many ways, wanted to do. But uh, then there was a problem with the, the first studio that Andy had decided to hire or his manager had made this, but basically it didn't, it wasn't as advertised. And we kind of, oh, this is, I really don't want to go into this story very much. I'm trying to explain to you why my incentive had been worn away over the months leading up to the final recording process of Apple Venus. Because by the new year of 1998, we'd gone back to Chipping Norton Studios, where we should have gone in the first place, and started from scratch. That start from scratch, which meant that the double album wasn't going to be a flyer. It's going to have to be a single album. So then I thought, well, actually, there's so much brilliant material here. This could be a killer album. Uh, but then, it, then Andy said, well, no, we can't go and do another album, half orchestral, half acoustic, half electric. That's not going to work. I said, well, that's what we've always done. He said, no, not this time. No, no. I want to do, a, you know, the orchestral one. We'll go to Abbey Road and do the strings there. And I'm thinking, oh, that means I'm going to be stuck playing bits of piano and scoring strings, which takes forever. Don't let anyone fool you. It's right. a long and involved process. And I don't want to do that. And so I kind of dawdled. I did produce a couple of charts. Can't remember what the songs were. Um, and uh, but he didn't really. He wasn't. He wasn't really crazy about what I'd done. And I thought, yeah, well, I could. They could be improved. But do I want to do that? I didn't. I really. 
wasn't in a mood to, to, to make the changes that he was insisting on. And particularly was that we were making an album that I hadn't, it wasn't the album that I'd waited seven years to make. And so that kind of created some friction. He was being difficult, the way I saw it anyway, I thought he was being really difficult uh, in other areas, blaming us for all the uh, pitfalls and stumbling blocks along the way, which was completely unfair. We, I remember we had a big row at Shipping Norton one morning, um, at which point two people walked off the project. They did return, but very disgruntled. Hmm. Um, it wasn't a happy album. Pro it, the whole thing was not happy. So eventually we had one last, oh, yeah, well, I needn't go into the reasons why, but we had a big fight, a failure to agree. And I said, that's it, I'm out of here. There's nothing here for me. You do whatever you want to do. I'm out of here. So I stomped off never to return. And uh, and so he was able to, through Hayden Bendel, as I say, lovely man, a lot of friends in the business, he was able to secure the services of Mike Batt, arrange the strings absolutely beautifully. And I'll be perfectly honest, even my best work wouldn't match what he did with I Can't Own Her, because that's the most gorgeous string arrangement I've heard in many a long year. Mm. So... Hats off to Mike Batt. I don't know how many people are aware that it was him who did those scores, but he did a majestic job. And the album, is a, it's a beautiful record. To me, it's not an XTC record. It's Andy Partridge's solo album, a couple of songs from Colin, where I did play. I did most of the keys and guitars on those, on Colin's songs. But it's Andy's album. And then there's Wasp Star, which is part two, which is the more electric version. But there's something missing there, and it's probably you, but uh, it just doesn't sound quite right. No, I, well, so they've been using, uh, I think, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but I think they used uh, a sort of 16-bit digital recorder, the radar recorder, to record it, and, you know, pod version one guitar processor uh i think they had a great drummer i have I've, i'll be honest i've never heard wasp star i couldn't bring myself to listen to it i still wow. can't <laughs> just out of spite i'll admit it hmm. but i know that there's good songs on it the wheel and the maypole i was so disappointed not to work on that and we're all light too uh, first time i heard the demo of we're all light i thought oh geez this is so good um, there's a couple of others that I could could have happily dismissed, but you know they did it. It's done. Um, and and then shortly after that, Colin and Andy fell out about something. So I guess that ran down the curtain on on XTC. So did you all come back together to do the last Duke's track, "Open a Can of Human Beans"? Mm, yeah. Well, I say come back together. We never actually sat in the same room together. That's what I was wondering. No. And you can hear it's not really, it doesn't, doesn't sound like the Dukes, does it? Not really. 
it's a digital facsimile of someone doing a Duke song, kind of. Needs John Leckie hmm. and a tape recorder. But you all communicated with each other at least to do this. It's it's a Duke's track yeah. that ended up on a charity record and then kind of was a bonus track later on the Duke CD. We've actually patched up our differences since. Well, at least I've patched them up with Andy. We've, uh, as I say, he, uh, he, he probably will never forgive me for walking out on his project. Not because he misses my music, just because I had the nerve to do it. Hmm. And, I interviewed um, him in like 2009 and he'd said that you two were on good terms, but he and Colin weren't on good terms. Yeah, yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. I can't, I don't know. You, you'd have to ask him about that or, or interview Colin. Why do you think, are you surprised that, because those two albums were what, I think 99 and 2000. So we're talking about, I mean, I, I'm always like, everything that I think was like three years ago is really like 20 years ago. Um, That's right. Are you, are you surprised that neither one of them has put out just a full length album in the last 20 years? Yeah, I'm disappointed that Andy hasn't done that because uh, he's got hours of really quality material. But you see, Andy is kind of paranoid that whatever he does won't be viewed as being as good as XTC. And he's worried that people are going to say, yeah, Andy, that was great. However, how much better would it be if it was an XTC album? You know, that's he doesn't want to go to the trouble of doing all that work just to be damned by faint praise and being compared to something that no longer exists. I think that's his biggest issue because he, mm. he is a lazy bugger, really. He, writing songs is what he does best because it comes he, it comes so naturally to him. You know, he's writing songs in his sleep virtually. So that's not the problem. But he, he would, I know that he would love to find sympathetic musicians who could play and understand where he's coming from and where he's going. And he could, you know, put them in a room and tell them what to do. That's Andy's ideal situation. Now he's got health issues with his ears and he's finds, you know, loud noises, particularly, you know, drum kits especially, uh, very difficult to deal with. I've tried to sort of convince him to maybe... Um, come along to one of these so many XTC conventions happening nowadays and I to try and twist his arm think, why don't we just show up for a photograph or something oh no there'll be loud music there and there are too many fans and I can't do this and I won't do that and blah 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 so I, it's impossible you have to kind of use reverse psychology on Andy at times so just say yeah you no one wants to see you parts you your has been no one ever wanted no one's going to show up to one of your gigs man you might as well just stay at home and he might think about doing something, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't bet on it. And all four of you are in Swindon, but there's no sense of, Hey, you know, why don't we just like get together and try playing music? Do together? the show right here. Yeah. <laughs> no. If there was an opportunity for the, the, the Black Sea lineup or the English settlement lineup to do one last album for the hell of it, I'd be there in an instant, but, you know, individually, if they, I just, no, if it's XTC, it's the four of us. 
solo projects that's that's something else that's your pigeon mate you you do that that's what you want to do you do if you had to run out of your house in a hurry and you could grab only one record and one guitar what would they be oh boy the record would probably depending on which shelf it was on, because my Steely Dan albums are on the lower shelf and I probably wouldn't be able to get down there. I was going to say Countdown to Ecstasy. Um, but it would probably be... Oh, oh dear. It might be Stevie... Oh, Stevie Wonder's on the bottom shelf as well. I wouldn't. Stevie Wonder... You could grab whichever shelf you want. I'm going to give you time uh, yeah. to grab. Yeah, which one would it be? You see, as soon as we go off air, as it were, I'll remember that. My favourite album of all time. Um, one album, one album. Well, let me see, one guitar. I think at present it would probably still be my 1953 Gold Top Les Paul that I bought in San Francisco when we were working with Todd. And I brought it back from the store and plugged it in and did Dear God. That was the first thing I did with it. Mm. Time, it still had... <laughs> Still needed so a lot of money spending on it just to get it in a playable condition. It was it was dreadful, um, but that guitar there's some there's a magic in in the wood that I hear every time. It's just it's like a sort of um, it's a it's a rock sound, but at the same time you've got pick up at the bridge end. That's a, the perfect rock and roll pickup, and also for slide as well because it sustains forever and it just pulls notes from a, when you put metal on metal it'll pull that sound out and then you've got the pickup at the neck which is great for playing jazz were I even capable of playing jazz or the classic you know fluty woman tone thing does that as well you know and you can use it for uh, it's just really really comfortable the neck's the perfect size and shape and it's old, but it still performs well. It would either be that one or uh, the 55 Telly that I, I bought a few years ago, uh, which has been refinished and refretted and God knows what else. Again, fantastic sounding guitar. They, they just have, you know, the sounds in them that started me, tune my ears into electric guitar in the first place. Countdown to Ecstasy, that's definitely one of those albums that, uh, no, I'll tell you the, the greatest album for me of all time, Axis Boulder's Love, Jimmy. Mm. Uh, that was the second album I owned. And I think I had a, I had a mono copy because it had the pink lyric sheet in the middle. All my records got lost and stolen. God knows what. Yes, because oh. I didn't used to look after my stuff as a kid terrible i remember thinking i will never ever be one of those boring people that collects records and buys spends all their money on hi-fi that's not what this is all about i just want to rock out with my guitar once i've heard a record played it a few times i never want to hear it again this was my thinking as a teenager right. i never looked after my records and they got lost and they got mashed up and god knows what and axis boulders love is one of those records that got lost but I've since found a very, very beaten up mono pressing of that album. As soon as I put it in the computer and got rid of most of the crackles and pops and burned it on a CDR, 
And it's just, I just think it's the most magical, perfect combination of pop and rock, psychedelia, and just genius musicianship. Because the stuff he's doing, I can't figure out how he, where he's finding those notes on the guitar. They, hmm. Where did he pull those from? And the sound of the guitar, Eddie Kramer, gift from God to Jimi Hendrix. Also, Mitch Mitchell, really, really totally underrated drummer, one of my favourite drummers of all time. He was the perfect drummer for Jimi Hendrix, uh, regardless of what, I don't know, Ginger Baker might say. Uh, Mitch and Jimi together, that was a really hot ticket. So I'm, I'm going to say Axis Boulder's love. Do you have a sense of how revered XTC is? Because I think that that really you guys are one of the foundational bands. And you know, I don't know if, if you hear you know other bands and think, oh, they this sounds kind of like they've been listening to us. And if you have a sense of it or whether you're just sort of like, yeah, we, it's something we did. And I'm not really as aware of how, how it lives on in the outside world. Actually... Only comparatively recently have I been made aware, partly through, uh, uh, you know, the internet and social media. But in 2015, I was invited over to Los Angeles to take part in a charity event, the Wild Honey Foundation, uh, which is um, a charity event for autism. And they, they were going to reproduce the White Album, the Beatles' White Album. And... Uh, I think it was uh, my friend David Jenkins, in, uh, who, who worked at, at True Tone Music, suggested that I would be a good contender to do some of the George guitar parts. Anyway, cut a long story short, uh, went, to, went to LA to rehearsals and met all these other musicians who'd, who were taking part in this event. And um, I got the impression, you know, well, how many people here have even know who I am? You know, I just felt really lucky to be there, to be honest. And why they'd asked me, I don't know. Maybe because I thought XTC had a sort of Beatlesque quality to them and um, and my playing style might have sounded a little bit like George Harrison's. I don't know what it was. But anyway, <laughs> it turned out. Most of the people there were in awe of XTC. And I had no idea. Hmm. I mean, I... I realized later that most of the most of the musicians would have been at college when XTC were making records. I was probably maybe 10, 15 years older than a lot of them. And um, they just, just saw me as uh, this little piece of this British jigsaw that they'd grown up loving and admiring. And at one point, <laughs> we didn't have much rehearsal time there. You know, I think we had three days of full band rehearsals to do to, re, to, to nail the songs on that album, plus a few extras. So it wasn't a lot of time to waste. And somebody suddenly started um, playing Mayor of Simpleton, which of course I had to join in with. Hmm. And they were going nuts for this song. And there's footage out there, of phone footage, I, I, I hasten to add, of us struggling our way <laughs> through Simpleton. And they were nice. really, you could tell these people were in love with this music. And uh, as I spoke to people later, you know, it was almost like I was <laughs> some kind of visiting deity. I, extraordinary. And I was really humbled by it. And I felt kind of self-conscious from that point forward because I had no idea. And I, when I came back to England, I, I contacted Andy straight away and said, you have no idea 
the love that exists for XTC in, in Los Angeles, at least, among the musicians and studio people. Yeah, it's beyond Los Angeles, I would say. But it's, it was very gratifying and um, humbling and, and kind of made all the, all the tough stuff worthwhile because it wasn't always the happiest of bands. And we did, you know, we kind of, it's how, how, not, to, how not to forge a career, a, a group career, <laughs> take a look at how XTC went about things and learn from that because it, it really what saved us. Make no, make no bones about it. it. Was the quality of the songwriting, and the fact that it was original, and it wasn't mainstream, and it was never going to be platinum selling, and yet there it is. It exists. I mean, I've been buying multiple different format copies of it because those records mean a lot to me, and and I'm like, oh, another version of Skylark. You know, I already have this one, this one, and this one, but I'll get that one too. Oh, and there's a Steve Wilson mix of. Uh, you know, none such, uh, you know, get better pick that one up as well. So they're, they're just these, these, again, these sort of foundational albums, you know, they, they occupy these spaces that I don't think anyone else does. So, so I'm, I'm glad that you got some sense of how much people, the, the, the records uh, mean to people and it's, the songs are, are great and the playing is great. And, you know, everyone in like none of it. As, as you can see from the last 20 years where there's been no music from anyone, I mean, aside from like little sort of EPs and stuff like that, you know, the band was the band and that was what you needed. You needed all of, all of you um, to make XTC records. Yeah, I agree. I think we were a pretty good combo. It's a shame that it kind of um, fell apart for, you know, reasons that were not entirely musical, shall we say. Yeah. And, um, you know, but there it is. It was it was great fun. I'm so glad I I've got the opportunity to to do it. Apart from anything else, how many people get the opportunity to do what they love doing most and make a living out of it? Well, I hope at some point, music aside, that you're all able to sort of get together and have a cup of tea in Swindon nice. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, I've had a, I've had a number of beers with Terry Chambers. We never fell out. Uh, he was always, um, you know. I, I never had any squabble with him. And of course, Andy is a great character. And I'll, he's always, uh, no, without, without Andy, there will never be XTC. So, regardless of how many tribute acts or copyists there might be, people who've been influenced by the band, it won't be XTC without Andy Partridge. Absolutely. And Colin's sort of off on his own at this point. I don't know what he's doing. He's doing, yes, he's doing solo work. He's doing sort of EPs and single tracks, I understand. But I don't think he has a career plan in mind. I don't know. He might do. He might do. I think there was a, when he and Terry got together to do the TCNI project, they, they did very well. They did this. They sold out six nights at this local theatre in Swindon. And I've, everyone I've spoken to about all of those shows has uh, said what a wonderful gig it was, how fantastic it was to hear Colin again out on stage singing and playing just his songs with Terry playing drums and uh, the other guys helping out on guitar and, and keyboards. And, you know, I know Terry was particularly keen to keep that going having been come back from Australia after 30 odd years, having not 
done very much playing at all to come back to his hometown and and work with his old mate in in the same band it was uh, it was a you know a godsend to him but for whatever reason colin didn't to make a career out of it or or, or go out and tour which of course terry did want to do right which is how go. xtc has come about right the extc um, and you and you and you weren't tempted to go down and see any of those shows um no not really no no um no I, apart from anything else you know i didn't really want to sit in a theater with everyone pointing and whispering that was part of it really mm. and uh colin and i have not been on friendly terms for a number of years either i regret to say well well i'm sorry to hear that but you guys made fantastic music together and i you've been so generous uh with your time and insights uh, this has been a, just a such a treat for me to get to talk to you um and i really appreciate it and uh thank you so much thanks for thanks well, thank for you doing mark this. it's been a pleasure meeting you and thanks for the invitation and thanks for the trip down memory lane that's it for episode 15 of carol pop Thanks so much to Dave Gregory for being so generous and insightful while telling stories about his memorable work in one of my favorite bands. In the words of Chris Farley, that was awesome. You can read more about Dave Gregory on his website, guitargonauts.info, and of course, you should seek out his work with XTC. Start with Drums and Wires, and be sure to hit Black Sea, English Settlement, and Skylarking, as well as Oranges and Lemons, and Chunks of Nonsuch. Oh, and the Dukes of Stratosphere, too. Come back next week for a conversation with a producer who doesn't call himself a producer, but turn the knobs on some landmark albums. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, our own most valuable player. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.